The following is a production of the people of Mars Hill. For more information, visit pomh.org. Good morning, everyone. If you would, turn in your Bibles to James chapter 2. So guys, milestone, we have made it to the second chapter of James. There was a guy in our small group who had been away for, for a few months and and we were just, his first week back to small group was last week or the week before. And he was like, y'all are still in chapter one? Like, man, y'all are really moving slow. Well, today, take heart. We're looking at seven verses at one time. So this is, this is a big deal for us, guys. So James chapter two, verses one through seven is where we're gonna be camped out today. While you're turning there, let me ask you this. Do we have anybody who's a picky eater? Or maybe you know somebody who's a picky eater. Okay, no picky eaters in the house. Okay, well, well, great, good for you guys. I, on the other hand, am a picky eater. My wife, I would say, is a pretty picky eater as well. And so therefore, our children inherently become picky eaters. And so my son is the poster child of a picky eater. There's a short list of things that he likes. He likes bok bok, which is chicken. He likes yogurt, he likes snacks. And he likes anything sweet. So chocolate, donuts, Krispy Kreme, he's a big fan of, cakes, you name it, he likes it. But there's a long, extensive list of things he does not like. Anything that would probably pertain to being healthy, he's not a fan of. Um, But there's one thing, strangely enough, he does not like mashed potatoes or hasn't liked mashed potatoes. And I don't know if it's a texture thing or if it's a taste thing or it's a little bit of both, he's just not a fan of mashed potatoes. So one day, my wife and I, this is before our daughter was born, and our son went to Dairy Queen. And so we go, we sit down, we order, and obviously we order my son some some bok bok, some chicken and french fries. And, And so he's eating it, and you can't go to Dairy Queen. You can't go to the queen of dairy's house and not get ice cream. And so my wife and I got ice cream for dessert. And so me, being a loving generous father that I am, I offer him some of my ice cream, which is a big deal in our house. Offering desserts to share is a big deal, trust me. And so to my surprise, my son says, no, he doesn't want any of my ice cream that I'm offering him. He didn't want anything to do with it. And so I was blown away. Why, why would you not want my ice cream? And so the more I began to think about it, the more I began to make sense of it. Ice cream and mashed potatoes shockingly look very similar, probably very nearly identical to a one-year-old little boy. And so what my son did is he made a judgment based upon an external circumstance. So he looked at the ice cream and he associated it with mashed potatoes and he came to the conclusion, I don't want it. And so what he did is he gave all of his attention to the bok bok, to the chicken, and to his french fries. He rejected the ice cream and pursued the bok bok, the ice cream. And so in today's passage, this is what James is telling us. He's warning us against not to reject ice cream and to eat chicken, but he's saying that we need to be careful to not do something similar in our own lives. We can make judgments towards people based upon external circumstances, based upon what we see. So whether that be race or class or age or gender or wealth, if we're not careful, we can give all of our attention to that which we think will benefit us or that which we think is similar to us or profit us and neglect what appears to be undesirable 
to us. And so this is the very thing that James is warning us against today. And so if you remember back to last week, last week we learned about what true religion may look like. And so we learned that it, true religion controls the tongue and it visits orphans and widows and cares for those in need and it keeps oneself unstained from the world. Well, today James takes this a step further. James is saying today that if you've been adopted into God's family, if you're sons and daughters of the most high God, then what you're gonna do is you're gonna treat all people fairly. You won't, like my son, make judgments towards people based upon external circumstances, based upon that which we see. We will not show favoritism towards one group of people over another. You won't make distinctions in the church, divisions within the church. There should be nothing that divides us. And so this is what James is gonna tackle today. So if you would direct your attention to James chapter two, verses one through seven. Let's dive in. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into courts? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called. Okay, so let's look at verse one. Verse one, my brothers show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. So verse one, James, this is James's thesis statement, basically. He's setting the stage for the rest of the passage that we're gonna be looking at this morning. Verses two through seven, they build off of what James is saying here. So here's an obvious statement to get us get our juices flowing, obvious question, who is James talking to? And the answer is in the verse. The answer would be the church. He's saying, my brothers show no partiality. So James is writing to the saints. He's writing to the church, to those who like James identify themselves with Christ, the Lord of glory. So he's writing to those who have been adopted into the family of God. So James is very, very intentional in his use of this word here, my brothers. He's saying, listen, you and I have been united by the blood of Jesus, and we therefore are family. And because we've been united by the blood of Jesus, this is what the family of God should look like. And so he's encouraging him this. So my brothers, family, get rid of any favoritism that might be present within the church. James is saying that partiality within the family of God is unwelcome. Show no partiality. But I think a helpful question would be for us to ask, what is partiality? Maybe we can define that, help us see some clarity here. Well, an interesting fact is that this is literally the first time that this word partiality is used or appears in the Greek language period. So this is not a common term being thrown around here. But because it's not a common term, does it mean that it's not a common practice? And I think this is important for us to understand. Thomas Smiley, one of our infamous uh, pastoral interns made a really good point as we were talking about this this week. He said that the infrequency of this word probably stems from the reality 
that this practice of showing partiality was so well known, it was so ingrained in their culture that there wasn't even a name for it. It was that they didn't even realize the need to name this because it was just such a part of their life. And so this word literally birthed out of the early church. And it most likely stems from the Hebrew word that was used for partiality. So we see it in Leviticus 19, verse 15, Psalm 82, verse 2. And so this is an expressly Christian term, and it literally means to receive or lift up the face. That's about as clear of a definition as mud is, right? Like what what does that mean, to receive or to lift up the face, meaning something's caused you to lift up your face. Maybe an example or an analogy will be helpful. So I want you to imagine, envision, place yourself in the shoes of being a 17-year-old teenage boy and you're going to prom for the first time. And so you're driving to pick up your date and you go up to their house, you park your dad's car, you walk up to the house, you knock on the door, and then here's the dad opens the door. And so here you are, and he says, come on in, son. And so you walk in, and he's grilling you with these questions. What's your plans? What's your intentions with my daughter? Are you going to take care of her? And you're, yes, sir, I promise I'll take care of her. So your eyes are locked in with dad. And then all of a sudden, in an instant, down walks your date from up in the stairs. And so at that moment, the beauty of your date draws your attention, lifts up your face. The beauty of your date causes your eyes to shift from looking at dad in that moment to looking at date. And so we begin to see that her, your attention is no longer directed towards the father. It's now directed towards the something much, much more beautiful than the father. So being partial to something or to receive the face of something is the act of making judgments based upon external circumstances, such as race, class, rank, age, gender, achievements, ancestry, or wealth. It's really raining, isn't it? Like, man, it's coming down. So fun, funny story really quick. The first time I ever interned here at church, it was raining about like this. And Josh had me, he gave me an umbrella and he said, will you walk people to the car? I didn't have a rain jacket, I didn't have anything. So my first day ever working here, I got drenched walking in rain like this. So that's a fun rabbit that we chased. I'm gonna talk really loud over the rain. So this is a task showing partiality. It's a task that's making unjust distinctions. It's extending favoritism towards one person or party over another based on external circumstances. And so this is a task. This is something that must not be found within the church. My brothers show no partiality, zero partiality. But why? Why must impartiality not be found within the church? Well, partiality must not be found within the church because it's not found within God. It's completely contrary to the gospel. God shows no partiality. We have to understand this. And so listen, God never commands us to do something that he isn't willing to do himself. And so think about this. Think about the 10 commandments, for example. God says, do not commit adultery. Be faithful to your spouse in the same way that God is faithful to his bride. Or the command to not steal. 
and we don't steal and we ultimately see God being a generous God. And so do not give false testimony because God is truth in and of himself. Do not covet because God is generous and he delights in giving good gifts to his people. And so anytime, the, the list could go on and on. Anytime there's a command, we can trust and know that God will be faithful to live this out. And so we take hope. God is not like us. He is not a fallen parent like we are. If I've learned anything in being a father, it's that it is a sanctifying endeavor. And so parents, we often fall victim to the reality that we will command or tell our children to do something and we're telling them to do something that we struggle with doing ourselves, fair? So son, I know you've heard me say that, but you can't say it. Or son, I know you've seen me do this, but you can't do this. Don't do as I say, not as I what? Do. And so this is a reality is that we fail in living out the commands that we give, but that's not the case for God. God, walk, or God talks the talk, but he also walks the walk. And so anytime we see a command in scripture, we know that God will be faithful to living it out. And so James 2 is no different than any other command we find in scripture. We want partiality to be distant from ourselves because it's distant from God. God didn't extend salvation to us because of the way we dressed, nor does our bank account lure God into giving us salvation. Our skin color doesn't entice God into giving us favor. Blessing is not extended to us because of our age or heritage or anything external. Salvation is on the table for all people everywhere, no matter their skin color, no matter their age, no matter their net worth, no matter their past. We learn this the, through the book of Romans. The book of Romans was crystal clear in this. All of scripture is crystal clear in this. But Romans 10 says this, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So therefore, if God shows no partiality in his giving of salvation, then we must show no partiality either. If we are recipients of God's grace, then we must be those who extend grace. If favoritism is far from God, then it must be uh, distant from us as well. Faith and favoritism are incompatible. And so as you hold your faith in Jesus Christ, the, the Lord of glory, show no partiality. James makes this crystal clear in verse one. Now, as we continue to read, looking at verses two through four, James gives his readers specific, tangible examples of what partiality may look like within the church. He says this, for if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? And so James is saying there should be no partiality within the church. And then he says, all right, let me give you an example. So you're in your assembly, two men walk into your assembly. This, the start of this example reminds me of one of those terrible dad jokes. You know what I'm talking about? So two men walk into a bar and then the third man ducks. You know what I'm talking about? Just one of those, no, okay, never mind. So James is saying two men walk into the assembly 
a, a wealthy man and a poor man. And this word for assembly is the same word used for synagogue. It's synagogue in the Greek. So this is a place where Jews would meet for worship, instruction, and encouragement in their faith. And so in modern day terms, this would be exactly where we're sitting today. This is a perfect example. This is a place where saints would gather to encourage one another, to sit under preaching of God's word, and to worship together corporately. So this is the assembly. So while they were gathering together, two men walk in, one wearing a gold ring and fine clothing. And during this time, rings would be a symbol of great wealth. And he's wearing fine clothes. So this man is looking good. There would be no doubt in anyone's mind that this man possessed great wealth. But on the opposite spectrum, the other man walks in, a poor man in shabby clothing comes in. This man didn't have much um, to show for his work. He had no fine clothes to put on. He probably wasn't able to shower that day. He had no toothbrush. His clothes were filthy, drenched with sweat. There was nothing, I guess, desirable from the eyes of the church here in this man. You have two men walking in from vastly different backgrounds, opposite spectrums walking into the assembly. Now, James doesn't give us much more information about these two men than this. We, we don't know if these were, uh, I guess, active members of the assembly, active members of the church, or these could have been first-time guests, or these could have been believers, these could be non-believers. We simply don't know more than the fact that one man was wealthy and one man was not, and they both came in. And so as a result, you lift up your face, you direct your attention to one and not the other. So you focus your attention upon the wealthy man. You gravitate towards the man of great wealth. You begin to show partiality to him and neglect the other. To the man in five clothing, you roll out the red carpet. You say, welcome to Mars Hill. Here, have the best seat in the house. We have couches in the back. You're welcome to sit here. Here's a pillow, make yourself at home. Sit here in a good place, as the text says. While in the same breath, you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or you sit at my feet. Saying to the poor man, here, sit at my feet would have been a slap in the face. It's here, sit on my footstool. It's a sign of subjection. You're saying I'm better than you are. So you see honor being extended to the wealthy, sit here in a good place, while in the same breath you see separation, stand over there, or shame, sit at my feet, extended to the poor. And so partiality is extending honor to one while extending separation to another. And so as you see on the slide, I made the error and literally everybody in the first service let me know. I wrote impartiality is extending honor to one while extending separation to the other. The correct word is partiality. So in case you missed it. So we just mark that out and put partiality above it. So this partiality is something that we do not want. It's extending honor to one while extending separation and shame to another. And in doing so, you've made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts. As James says, you're unknowingly making divisions upon what you see. So when we should be showing love to one, and when we should be outdoing one another and showing honor, we're actually making distinctions based upon external circumstances. You've become judges with evil thoughts. And now before we move on, I want us to point one thing out really quickly, and it's a danger that I see here in this text is from an outside looking in, 
this gathering appeared to be pretty inviting. So at the moment, the assembly would have had a diverse group of people coming in. So you have rich and poor people coming into the assembly. So from just a bird's eye view, this church seems to be going pretty well. They seem to be living out the gospel, inviting all people in. At a surface level, this body of believers are doing well. But upon further evaluation, when you begin to zoom in on their actions, you'll begin to notice that their practices are evil. They're making distinctions among themselves and becoming judges with evil thoughts. This is a group of people who've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, yet through their actions, they're trying to tear down what Christ has built up. So listen, on a surface level, we too may show no sign of partiality. We could look like a diverse group of people. We could have people from all spheres of life coming into our assembly. Our mission statement could be in line with the gospel, yet still be guilty of showing partiality. So James's primary concern is not with the mission statement of a church. James is concerned with gospel transformation in the life of individual Christians. James is aiming at specific actions that flow from the heart of individual believers, individual members of the church. We could be a church that opens the door to both the rich and the poor, to white and black, old and young, yet still be guilty of showing partiality. And we must be careful of this. So as men and women who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, who have placed their faith in Christ, who identify with him, we must come to terms with the uncomfortable reality that we could be guilty of this, what he's warning us of. And if we are guilty, if the Holy Spirit does convict us, we must repent of such wickedness immediately because making distinctions based upon external circumstances is an evil endeavor. So up until this point, James has made a statement, show no partiality. And then he gives us an example of what this impartiality may look like within the church or partiality. And so we therefore see that partiality is an evil practice that can show its ugly head within the life of the church today. And so then in response to that, James follows up with three rhetorical questions. And so in verses five through seven, he asks this, he says, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in the faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? So James is saying that God takes those who seemingly have nothing and he exalts them. He takes the lowly, the poor in the world, and he extends to them the riches of faith. He makes the poor heirs of kingdom of God. He lifts the lowly brother up. So this is incredible news. And on the contrary, as we learned in James chapter one, that the rich will be humiliated because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. The rich will fade away in the midst of their pursuits, as he says in James one. And this isn't because God doesn't love the rich. Rather, it's because the rich see no need for the gospel of Jesus. And so why do I need help? Why do I need Jesus when I have all that I need? Anytime trouble may arise, I can just write a check and provide a solution. I see no need for Jesus, says the rich man. And so with that, I think we have to make something clear. James is not saying that God has chosen all people who are financially poor to go to heaven. Nor is he saying that no wealthy people will ever go to heaven. Faith in Jesus Christ is our only hope for salvation. And so James is saying that coming to God empty-handed, crying out for salvation, 
is a vital necessity for salvation. It's blasphemy. It's foolish to think that you can come to God with your riches or with your good deeds and woo him into granting you salvation. God doesn't owe us anything, and we can't earn anything. We can't earn the salvation. It's a gift that he extends to us. The only ones who will ever be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom of God are those who love God and who have come to God empty-handed, clinging to the blood of Jesus. And so our love for God must always trump our love for the riches of this world. If not, we're going to end up like the rich young ruler, and we see that. Do you remember the story of the rich young ruler? The rich young ruler goes to Jesus asking, what good deeds must I do in order to have eternal life? And when we hear Jesus, when he, after the conclusion of this conversation, he hears Jesus's invitation. He says, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasures in heaven and come follow me. So Jesus is inviting him, come follow me. It's, it's an invitation. Yet you, we see that at the response of this invitation, the rich young ruler walks away sad because he has great possessions or because these great possessions have him. So we need to be careful that we must not allow material wealth to choke out, in a sense, our love for God. And remembering, we must remember that there is great hope for those who understand that nothing in this life will profit us in the end. There is great hope for those who stand before the cross empty-handed. This rhetorical question possesses in it a promise to those who love him. It's a promise that we can bank, in, bank on. And so despite this hopeful truth, despite this promise that God chooses those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith, we see the church is looking past those who are poor and are directing their attention to the rich, doing exactly the opposite of what God desires. And so you would think that if verse 5 is true, then the church would extend as much honor to the poor as they do the rich man. However, James unfortunately tells us that you have dishonored the poor man. So he's saying, you know the gospel, and you know your need to be, that you are broken before God, and you know that God shows no partiality, yet you're rejecting the poor man. You're living out the exact opposite of what I command. And so this isn't a command to swing the pendulum to the other side and say, okay, well, this is convicting, and so I just need to reject the rich and extend love and grace to the poor. No, James is blasting the preferential treatment towards people based upon external circumstances. So we should extend honor to both men because in the kingdom of God, both men, just like us, desperately need Jesus. And so James is saying that being partial is foolish. And it's foolish because we, of what we see in verses six and seven. The rich are the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court. And they're the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called. So you're literally being partial to the ones who oppress you. And that's foolish, that's silly. Why would you do that? You're literally giving rich power to rule over you. Your actions are irrational. And that's exactly what sin is, it's irrational. Sin makes no sense. It's an irrational endeavor. When we sin, we sin because in that moment, we come to the irrational conclusion that the pleasure of sin is better than the joy of righteousness. And so in the garden, Adam and Eve came to the irrational conclusion that disobeying God would work out for their benefit. 
And in the same way, when we sin, we too come to the irrational conclusion that sinning against God, rebelling against what he commands will somehow work out in our benefit. That's what sin is, it's irrational. Sin tells us that being partial to the rich will somehow provide us a type of security, will somehow benefit us. And so when these two men walk in, our sin tells us to, the lie is to gravitate, to be partial, to lift up your face to the wealthy man, because somehow you might find benefit. Somehow you might feel protected from their wealth. We think if I can get this wealthy guy to become a member of our church, just think about the things that we can do from the kingdom. Or if I can have this wealthy guy become my friend, just think about the Christmas gifts we can get from these people. We, that's how our mind works is we think wealthy people will somehow benefit us. When we think about the wealthy, our interaction with wealthy is typically rooted in what we can receive. And then our interaction with the poor is somehow rooted in the idea that we're gonna have to give. And so therefore we oftentimes push away the poor and gravitate towards the wealthy because of our sinful desires, thinking it'll somehow profit and benefit us. We irrationally come to the conclusion that sin will work out in our benefit. We irrationally come to the conclusion that being partial to the wealthy will somehow provide us security. Yet, it will lead to our demise. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are not they the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? And so partiality goes against, being partial to the wealthy goes against the heart of God. It dishonors those who are made in the image of God. And believe it or not, it leads to our demise. It leads to the demise of those who practice it. And so as we close today, let me say this, each and every one of us face the temptation to show partiality. We face it today as we sit at our table, as we interact with the church, we face it in the church. And we'll face it as soon as we leave this church, as soon as we go to work and you're interacting with people, you face the temptation to be partial to someone who you think would benefit you or provide comfort to you. And if we're not careful, we will make an irrational judgments about people based upon external circumstances, whether that be wealth or age, race, gender, class, whatever it may be. And so we must remember that we are putting trust if we reject the poor and begin to be partial to the wealthy, this is a sinful endeavor. We're putting our trust in the wealth of man and not in God. If we're rejecting people of a different age or of a different gender, and we're being partial towards someone who looks like us, likes the things that we like, enjoys the things that we enjoy, you're, you're gravitating, you're seeking to find comfort in a commonality that's not rooted in the gospel. You're putting off, you're rejecting someone different than you. And we must guard ourselves of this. Showing favoritism towards one race over the other is sinful and wicked. Being reluctant to put a child in a school because the vast majority of the race is different than yours is disgusting and wicked and evil. You're isolating those who are different than you. You're putting your trust in the color of your skin and not in the God who created all people in his image. And so we as a church must guard ourselves of any partiality that we might find our heart gravitating towards. And so church, we live in a world where partiality and favoritism is ingrained in the culture, ingrained in our sinful nature. 
But take heart, we've been bought by the blood of Jesus. And we have been invited, grafted in, and we are a part of this new kingdom, the kingdom of God. And it's in this kingdom where our life must begin to look more and more like Jesus Christ, our Savior, the Lord of glory. So church, may we show no partiality as we interact with one another. And so let me pray for us and pray that we will be doers of the word and not hearers only. So Father, we love you, and God, we thank you for the gospel. God, if you were a God who showed partiality, if you had favorites, God, the reality is, is none of us in here would be in here. We, we would be far, far from you. But God, you being gracious, a giver of good gifts, God, you have extended to us salvation. And so God, we are so thankful for that. And so as followers of you, God, I pray that we reflect your character. God, I pray that we show no partiality as we interact with the, with the poor and with the rich or with anything that may divide us in terms of culture. God, I pray that that will not be the case here. God, I pray that we will be a church who's intentional in our relationships, intentional in living out the gospel. And God, I pray that we will be doers of the word and not hearers only. And God, I trust that your Holy Spirit will prompt us towards that. And so God, we, we praise you. God, we thank you for the cross. And God, we thank you that the tomb is empty and we serve a living God. And so God, we pray that we will be doers and not hearers only. So God, it's through your son's name we pray. Amen.